just a glimpse of you revealed is compelling us to sing. That is just a, a perfect song that would fit our entire sermon uh, series this summer. A glimpse of the glory of Christ revealed compels us to sing. And we sing with joy, we sing with gladness, we sing with excitement because we have seen our Savior and it compels us to sing. We've had such a wonderful summer going through the miracles of Jesus. We could do this again next summer because there are 37 miracles and we've only covered uh, uh, just a, a select amount of those. But one of the, the encouraging things that I've heard from you, from many of you, is that it has felt like every single sermon was specifically targeted to you, which is incredible to think about because we're not going through some form of uh, didactic epistles where it's telling you this is how you should live your life, this is what you should do. We're just seeing Jesus doing things. And as we see Jesus doing things, we see on display the holiness of Christ. And because His holiness shines a spotlight into our hearts, we see our own depravity. We see what we should do and how we should live in light of the glory of God. And ultimately, the bottom line is every single time that you and I come on the Lord's day in these doors and sit with hungry hearts, with broken hearts, with lacking hearts, with needy hearts, we are always going to be fed by the Word of God. Always. God always satisfies us in Himself through His, through His Word. The only time that we will come to church and feel like we, quote-unquote, got nothing out of it is when we come thinking we don't really need much. We don't need that much, and we sit in the pews, we sit in the chairs, and we think, you know what, we're doing pretty well in life, and so what could God possibly add to our awesome life? Instead, if we come broken, hungry, lacking, needy, we come desiring to feast at the feet of our Savior. That's when we will always walk away saying, man, that sermon was for me. Last Sunday, our brother Marty encouraged us in the Word to let the truth that we are learning not just impact our heads, but go to our hearts. He said that amazing quote of don't just, let, don't just go through the Bible, let the Bible go through you. Let it change your affections, let it change your desires, let it change your actions. And he said how often we grasp the facts about Jesus, but we miss the Savior. That's why we've been studying the miracles, because we wanted to make sure that we didn't do that. We wanted to make sure that we weren't like the disciples who, while seeing, they don't see. They don't perceive. They don't understand. And so I think it's a great place to end our sermon series through these miracles at the very first one that Jesus ever did in John chapter 2. We covered this over three years ago. And I think it would be a great place to end because it leads us to understand exactly what our brother Marty was preaching on last week. The glory of Jesus made manifest to those who would have eyes to see. So, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2, and we will read in verse 1 all the way down to verse 11, and we will ask God's blessing on our time together. John chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. 
Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs... Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, we want to see the glory of Jesus manifest, made manifest to us as it was to the disciples so many years ago. This, the first of 37 miracles that Jesus did, we want to see clearly the glory of Jesus and we don't want to learn more about him only to walk away with greater knowledge We want to learn more about him so that we can walk away with changed affections, with wills that have been broken and submitted fully to the will of Jesus. God, thank you for the blessing that we have had all summer long to stare at Jesus. Enable us to stare at him again this morning in such a way that you would raise our affections. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law about our Savior. And may we not remain unaffected. May Jesus be everything to us, everything. May he transform us from the inside out. God, change us as we stare at Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. There are four different aspects that you could kind of break this miracle into. You have the marriage celebration, you have the momentary crisis, you have a miraculous command, and you have the miracle's culmination. So we'll take those one at a time as we go through, starting with the marriage celebration. This is in verses 1 to 2, the marriage celebration. On the third day, the third day after the previous meeting that was in John chapter 1, where Andrew, John, uh, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are all meeting Jesus, talking with Jesus. On the third day after that meeting, Jesus is going to this wedding in Cana of Galilee. Weddings are the biggest events in Israel. They are, in ancient Judaism, they are the biggest party that you could possibly go to. Seven days of just feasting, a festival. This is a party to end all parties. And Jesus is invited to it, which tells us something. It tells us maybe he's related to somebody there. Maybe he knows somebody who's related to somebody there. But maybe just simply Jesus is a fun person to invite to a wedding. Jesus is a fun, awesome individual that you want to have out with you. By the way, if you get married, you should invite Jesus to your wedding. If you get married, you should invite him to be there to see to behold and to hold you accountable because your whole marriage is about him anyway jesus is invited to a wedding everybody loves jesus everybody loves him the kids love him they run up to him they hug him people love him they want to spend time with him there there's a group of people who don't like him and that group of people is the religious people religious people don't like jesus they look at him they say something's wrong with you everybody loves you Everybody loves you, so something must be wrong with you. 
People enjoy you. They invite you to parties. What's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with Jesus. Everything's wrong with religious people. They're no fun at all. <laughs> so invite Jesus to your wedding as these individuals invited Jesus to theirs. It's in Cana. It's not too far away from Nazareth, about four miles northeast or nine miles directly north of Nazareth, depending on the exact location of the town. But he's invited to a wedding. And so, verse 2, both Jesus and his disciples are invited and go to the wedding. They're invited, his mother's there, and they're a part of this beautiful marriage celebration. The second thing that we see is the momentary crisis, which you all know what this crisis is. The wine's going to run out. Verse 3, when the, the wine ran out, this is a terrible thing. There's supposed to be seven days of wine available, and the wine has run out. This is a very bad thing because in those days, the groom's family is responsible for paying for the wedding. I don't know when it shifted to the, the, uh, the, the um, woman's family is supposed to, the bride's family is supposed to pay. I don't know when that shift happened. Um, I have two sons, so I'm glad it shifted over to, okay, the, the wives will take care of that, so this is good for me. Um, but this was such an issue back then. If the wine ran out, if the festival had some form of a black mark on it, you could, you could actually sue the family. There could be lawsuits that would be brought up against the family if the party did not go as planned. This is what many fathers who would marry off their daughters fear the most. As this momentary crisis comes to light, I'm sure the father of the bride is thinking, yep, I knew it. This guy was a bum. I knew it. I should never have said yes to this. Look, he can't even figure out that the wine needs to be seven days full. The momentary crisis happens when the wine runs out and the mother of Jesus then goes to him to say, they have no wine. The wine's run out. Mary's going to appear twice in this gospel here and then at the foot of the cross. Joseph isn't mentioned in either of these situations, and that's probably because he's already dead. Some people say that she is asking Jesus to do a miracle. Jesus, I'm coming to hang out. There's no wine. Do a miracle. Perform some form of a miracle to make the wine show up again. Could be, but John tells us that this is the first miracle that Jesus ever did. So it's not like Mary is asking Jesus, can you keep doing what you've been doing? So maybe... Mm, probably not. Maybe she had heard a conversation about the baptism that had just happened or the temptation in the wilderness that had just happened or the, the filling of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descending and filling Jesus. Maybe now he's going to start his miraculous ministry as the Messiah. Maybe that's why. I, I think that it could be all of those things, but more obvious than that, honestly, I think the most obvious understanding is Joseph is out of the picture, Jesus is the oldest son, and Jesus is the one who can help. Can you help out some way? Go to Costco, get some wine. We need some help here, son. Help out in some way because my husband's gone and you are the oldest son. You can help out. I mean, just think about this. Every single time there was a problem in, at the home, Mary would go to Jesus and ask, and Jesus never gave a bad suggestion. Every time he gives a suggestion, I, I, maybe we could do this. It always turns out to be the right thing. So maybe Mary's just saying, okay, do you have a suggestion here? He's not going to steer her in the wrong direction. This just recently happened to me. Uh, yesterday, my daughter came running into our house, said, Dad, we have an emergency. 
would she never know how to take that? And so I said, what is it? And she said, there's a baby squirrel outside. And I thought, what? Why is there a baby squirrel outside? And sure enough, we go outside, and there's this little baby squirrel right next to our tree. And I just go, I don't know what to do. Why did you call me? I don't know what to do with this baby squirrel. And I'm afraid that this squirrel is going to die under my care. And right as my kids are watching on, it will just roll over and go, and that'll be the end. And I'm thinking, we're in trouble here. And so I literally say, I don't have my phone. I go back in to get my phone to Google, what do you do with the baby squirrel? And as I'm typing in, what do you do? I go, I don't need Google. I have Kim Joseph. <laughs> and so I call her. I say, Kim, help. And she was in a play. So I couldn't get the help I needed right then and there. But she texted me, I'm in a play. Do this, do this. You'll be OK. And so she comes over. She helps the squirrel. We're good to say the, the squirrel's doing fine. <laughs> squirrel's OK. But I just instantly went, I, I don't know what, I mean, literally I thought, I, Google or Kim? Kim's better than Google. I mean, I, I don't need Google, I've got Kim. I think that's what Mary's doing. I, I don't need anybody else's help. I've got Jesus. I'm just going to ask him for advice. Whether she's wanting a miracle, I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I know Jesus will give me a good suggestion. And brothers and sisters, this is great instruction for you and for me. Because we tend to go running to something or someone else other than Jesus. And we should always run to Jesus. If you have a problem, run to Jesus. Can you give me a suggestion? Jesus, do you have something that I can, can do? What should I do? Give me a suggestion. Give me a command. Give me guidance. Call out for Jesus. Always first, call out for his help. So she says, they have no wine. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? Literally, what does this have to do with me? Uh, us is a good translation because um, it's a weird phrase. Uh, to you, to me, to us is what he's saying. To you, to me, to us. What? Um, very strange phrase, but very strange start to the phrase. He says woman. He doesn't say mother. He doesn't say mama. He doesn't say mommy. What? Why does he say woman? It's not particularly endearing. It's not harsh, but he's, for all intents and purposes, calling his mom ma'am. Uh, ma'am. It, it's not rude. It's not as intimate as it could be. It's polite distancing. Uh, ma'am, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? Now, gentlemen, don't take this verse and make this your life verse, okay? Don't make, woman, what does that have to do with me? Don't make that your life verse. That's not what Jesus is saying. Football season's uh, uh, almost here. Don't make this your life verse when you're watching the game. Woman, what does that have to do with me? The, the toilet's overflowing. Woman, what does that have to do with me? You know one of the things that I absolutely love about this verse? How many of you, don't have to raise your hand, how many of you absolutely love your mom and you still have weird, awkward moments with her. So does Jesus. Like, it's biblical, right? It's in the Bible. I love my mom, and weird things happen, right? It's here. It's in the Bible. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. What is he saying? He says, woman, because he's saying our relationship has changed. There's a difference in our relationship now. 
Mainly the difference is I don't get my orders from you. I get my orders from my father. I'm supposed to be about my father's business. Remember, he said that when he was 12 years old. He's waiting on the father. And here, being filled with the Holy Spirit and being commissioned by the Holy Spirit at his coronation, if you will, at the baptism, he is fully doing what the father has said. The father's will is going to be done. So in essence, mom, you're not the one to give me the authority. You're not the one that can boss me around at this point. I'm waiting on my father, and he says no. He says don't do anything yet. She can't seek him on the basis of their mother-son relationship anymore. She must be seeking him differently. She, like everyone else, must come to the father through Jesus in a different relationship than just he's my physical flesh and blood, so therefore I get to call on him, and he has to do what I'm asking him to do. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, in essence, physical relationships don't pull weight with me. And you remember, everybody used to think this. Back with Jesus living his earthly life out in this world, people used to think, well, your mother and your brothers, they know you, they love you, and they surely have to get in to the kingdom just because they're related to you. And Jesus says, no, who are my mother and my brothers? They're people who do the will of God. It's not a flesh and blood issue. It's born by the Spirit and doing the will of God issue. You cannot come to Jesus because of your family. You can only come to Jesus because of your faith. And by the way, this is amazing news. Embedded in this verse, woman, what does that have to do with us? Embedded in this verse is amazing news for you and for me. If you have grown up in a household where your parents do not know Jesus, maybe they absolutely hate God, they might be the most ungodly people that you know. This verse tells us that that is no hindrance to you coming to Jesus because it's not through your family to get to Jesus. It's through faith to get to Jesus. So he says, our relationship has changed. Our relationship has changed, Mom. It's polite distancing. He says, what does that have to do with us? What, what, where, where's our relationship now? You, know, you remember this phrase was used by the demons when they were talking to Jesus, saying, what relationship do we have with one another? They, they were thinking Jesus had come to judge them right then and throw them into hell. And, and Jesus says, no, he's going to throw them into the pigs or throw, cast them out. But they say, what relationship do we have with each other? What, what business do we have? That's what Jesus is saying here. You, you can't give me commands. I wait upon the Father to receive that command. Namely, because, end of verse 4, my hour has not yet come. The hour of his glorification, the hour of his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. My hour has not come. I'm on a schedule. Everything's leading up to that schedule. And God the Father determines that timetable. Now, Jesus is going to end up doing the miracle. So sometime between his interchange between Mary and the miracle, the Father says, okay, you can do this. But at this moment, Jesus says, Father, can I do something? No? Okay. Woman, it's not time. It's not time. Now, it would be very easy for Mary at this point to say, Excuse me, son? Who went through labor for you? Who screamed in agony, pushing you out? Why would you call me woman? It would be very easy for her to get offended here. It would be very easy to say, Excuse me, why are you distancing yourself from me? I am your mother. But instead, she says, do whatever he says to do. This is similar to the Syrophoenician woman. Do you remember how Jesus says, when she's asking for a miracle to be done, heal my daughter, and Jesus says, I'm sorry, the, the kids have to eat at the table before the dogs do. She could easily have said, excuse me, I am not a dog. How dare you call me that? And instead, she says, yeah, but even the dogs can get just a crumb falling from the table. I just need a crumb of your glory. 
gladly submits herself to Jesus. And that's exactly what Mary does here. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's okay that we have a polite distancing going on here because he is the Messiah. Whatever he says, do it. And this is the second thing that's instructive to us about Mary. Mary, number one, when she has a problem, she goes straight to Jesus. Just give me a suggestion. Tell me what I should do. Straight to Jesus. And secondly, when she doesn't instantly get that suggestion, she waits upon him, says, whenever you tell me, whatever you tell me, I will do everything that you tell me. Whatever you say to do, I will do it. She doesn't leave. She doesn't say, excuse me, I asked for a suggestion here. Help me. Come on. She says, it's okay that I don't get one right now. Just whenever you figure out what you think we should be doing, we will do it. And we'll do it the exact way that you want us to do it. Mary's relationship to Jesus is just amazing. I think sometimes because uh, the Catholic Church has exalted her beyond a position that she should be, I think we try, you know, reformed Protestants to kind of go the opposite way and, and say, no, she's just a human. And yes, she is just a human. But she's an amazing human. She's an amazing human, the way that she responds to her Savior, the way that she speaks to Jesus. She's amazing, and she is instructive for us. So, we have a momentary crisis. What are we going to do about this? His mother says, do whatever he says. This leads us to number three, the miraculous command. Verse six, now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification. They contained 20 or 30 gallons each. This miraculous command is going to happen, but it's going to happen very specifically. John tells us there are six stone jars appointed for purification. Jesus is going to use the water pots that are used in bathing rituals, in purification rituals, where you would be bathed to be purified for the work that God would have you to do. There's meaning in these verses, but some people make it very strange and allegorical. Some people, I, I read a, a number of different options as to why these water pots are included, as to why six of them are included. Some people say that the whole wedding itself is a picture of the nation of Israel, that the water pots are a representation of the hardness of our own hearts and I, I, I just think that's reading into something there that doesn't need to be there. Uh, the hermeneutic, the, the biblical principle that we have of interpreting the Bible to figure out what Jesus is meaning by what he's saying, is always for us, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. When the plain meaning makes sense, you don't need to try and find a hidden meaning in there. So why does John include the descriptions that he's including. There are six stone water pots. They're there for Jewish custom of purification, and they contain 20 or 30 gallons each. Number one, I think he's just telling us this is an eyewitness testimony. He's there. He's seen this. He remembers it. He recalls it. It's not just water was turned into wine. It's a very specific detail. Number two, he says these are the Jewish custom water pots. Jesus is going to be doing, in essence, what he had told the Pharisees had to happen with their religion. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. It's going to burst. The message of the gospel doesn't fit into a man-made religion that allows you to purify yourself. You can't say, I need Jesus to purify me and stick that inside of your man-made laws and religions where you can purify yourself. That's going to burst. Those two don't mutually exist. So I think Jesus is picking a beautiful picture here of saying these stone water pots 
where we have a, a custom for Jewish ritual purification where you can make yourself clean. He says, in these, I'm going to turn water to wine, and I'm going to show you that the Jewish custom of purification, that's not needed. That's going to be obsolete when I go to the cross. And I'm going to put new wine in a new way to undo this religious system, to completely change it. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves. So it's an eyewitness testimony. It's also to tell us just how big of a miracle this was. Six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. If I can do math correctly, that's 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water that Jesus is going to turn into wine. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Another eyewitness account and another account, another description to help us see something by filling the, the pots all the way up to the brim. This isn't going to be a sleight of hand magic trick. That actually could have been done back in the day if you fill the water pot up pretty full, almost to the top, and then you pour in a little bit of concentrated wine, or you pour in a little bit of concentrated liquid that just kind of disperses and dilutes inside the wine, and you have, you have a whole jar full of wine. That can't be what's happening here, because Jesus says, fill it to the brim. I'm not adding anything to this. It's already full, all the way. So they fill them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now, verse 8, and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine. Wait, stop right there. This is, this is the most understated sentence in the Bible. And the water that's become wine. And didn't know where it came from. Wait, pause. When did it become wine? How did it become wine? Somewhere in these verses, Jesus says to Mary, time hasn't come yet. And then he's able to do it. Somewhere between verse 7 and 8, a miracle happens. How do you get wine? You get wine from grapes. How do you get grapes? You get grapes from vines. How do you get vines? You have seeds. How do you get seeds? You have other vines. How do you make the vines grow? You need sunlight. You need water. You need earth. You need dirt. How do you get the wine itself? You need to crush. You need to crush the grapes, strain out the juice. And then you need time. And here, there are no grapes, there are no vines, there's no seeds, no sunlight, no other seeds that make the seeds. No water, no earth, nothing. Jesus creates this out of nothing. He just says, let it be, and it is. This reminds us of the first miracle that we see in the Bible, which is the miracle of creation. Number one, making something out of nothing. He didn't need grapes to make wine. There's just water there, and he turns it into wine. But number two, we see... It's one of the biggest debates in our day and age, right? The, the whole evolutionary debate. The earth and the universe look like they're billions of years old. If we have a starting point that there's a star out in a galaxy somewhere and it takes billions of light years for light from that star to reach the earth, and if we have a starting point in our mind that everything that was made was made as a tiny little baby star that started to grow, that light took forever to get to Earth, then of course the world, the universe, the galaxies, they have to be billions of years old, if that's your starting point. But here in this miracle, as in the miracle of creation, as in really every other miracle, we see the principle of what we would call apparent age. 
apparent age. What kind of wine is the best wine? It's old wine. It's wine that's been sitting there for years, fermenting for decades. And Jesus is going to make the best wine that this head waiter's ever tasted, and he's going to make it in an instant. So this wine is going to be minutes old when the head waiter drinks it, but it's going to taste like it's 60 years old. How is that possible? It's possible with apparent age. That's exactly what happened with Jesus when, or with God the Father through Jesus, when the creation account happens. When God says, let there be light, it's not a baby star that then grows and sheds its light onto the earth. It's not that God makes a little seedling and puts it into the ground and puts dirt on top of it and says, all right, let's wait. No, he makes trees instantly. He makes fish instantly. He made Adam. How old is Adam when Adam is made? I, I like to ask my students this question. How old do you think Adam is? They're like, well, I mean, he had to have been really old, like 20 it's like, wow, that's really old now. But then when you ask a Bible study of older people, they're like, yeah, I mean, probably like in his 50s. It's like, okay, so here we go. We're, we've got a good spectrum here. Somewhere between 30, 20, 30, 40, 50, somewhere in there, we have a second old human who's 35. He's one second old, but he's 35 years old. That's exactly what Jesus does here. In every miracle that we see, he's making an instantly perfect and new hand on somebody's uh, body that can work just like uh, it should be working. Instantly perfect, apparent age to it. So Jesus makes the water become wine. And the head waiter doesn't know where it came from. He is observing from the outside. He was not there. He's an independent observer in this miracle. That's huge for eyewitness testimony, right? He's not a part of the act. If this is some ma magician doing some sleight of hand and the head waiter's there and could see it and be involved in it, he's not a part of the act. He's just an independent observer. Wasn't there when the miracle happened. And he drinks it. He calls the bridegroom over. End of verse 9. And he speaks to him. And he says this, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. What do you think this bridegroom would be thinking as he's hearing these words? Now, I'm guessing that this head waiter's face is probably betraying what he's about to say. He's blown away by what's going on. So I'm guessing that this man knows, I think this is good news, not bad news. But just think about putting yourself in this man's sandals for a second. How would you like to be this guy? You failed. Word is getting around in your wedding that the wines run out. Maybe you've heard whispering. Maybe your best man came up to you and said, dude, we have a problem. The wine's gone. And then you see the head waiter walking towards you, making a beeline for you, and he has a little pitcher of what you would assume would be water. And he's walking towards you, and you're thinking, this is it. The charade's up. There's going to be a lawsuit. Maybe my wife's going to be taken away from me. I've got to give back the dowry. This is, or I, I'm going to get the dowry back. This is bad. This is bad news. Everything's going to be bad. I have failed. I'm an utter failure. My responsibility, the thing that I was supposed to do that really is simple to be done, I failed. I failed. And you and I are just like this man. 
Every single time we have a job to do, namely be holy, we always let the wine run out. We always let the wine run out. Every single time, disobedience, disobedience. We are unholy. We haven't done our job. We haven't fulfilled our duty. We are called to be holy. We are called to hit the target of God's glory, and we fall short. And just like this man being faced with the reality of, I messed up, what are the consequences? And he's going to hear, somebody provided for you. In a miraculous way, somebody provided for you. Um, where you have failed, Jesus has provided. Where you have messed up, Jesus doesn't mess up. And he never messes up. He never fails. So, you have... Uh, every, every person serves the good wine first, and when the people are drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The bridegroom must be thinking, what's happening? I don't remember keeping any wine. Where's the extra wine? What's happened? You've kept the good wine until now. We all do this, right? We do this when we have friends over. We you know, cook a big meal and make it beautiful and festive and they finish it and they say we're still hungry and you go okay let's cook something else nice and if they were to stay and just keep eating everything that you have it's pretty much we have two week old leftovers that's all we've got you always serve the best thing first and then you finish up with well here's some leftovers if you're still hungry and Jesus is going to do the opposite of that he's going to take the best thing and serve it last covering this man's mistakes in, in essence, making him shine. You've done something amazing. You're ending this party with a bang. Look at this. This is awesome. D.A. Carson says, The emphasis on the excellent quality of the wine produced by Jesus is exactly what John does in his other accounts of Jesus' works. Jesus raises the temple in three days, even though it was built in 46 years. He not only cures the official son, he does it from a long distance. He doesn't merely heal a lame man, but he heals one who's been an invalid for 38 years. He feeds the crowds from a supply of only five small barley loaves and two small fish, when it would have taken eight months' wages just for each person to have one bite. Jesus does not merely give sight to a man gone blind, but one who has been blind from birth. And he doesn't just raise a dead man. He raises a man who'd been dead for four days. He shows his miracle-working power and manifesting his glory on display in every single miracle in the Bible that we've studied and the other ones that we haven't yet. So we see the momentary crisis happening at the marriage celebration. We see this amazing command where Jesus is going to turn water into wine. And finally, number four, we have the miracle's culmination. How does it all wrap up? Verse 11, the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. He manifested his glory. He sh showed everyone his glory on display. That's why John wrote this gospel. You remember we just covered this a couple months ago. John wrote so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why Jesus did these miracles, to validate the, the claims that he was making about himself. He says, I am God. People say, eh, I don't know. I know you were born from Mary. You're just a human. And Jesus says, here, I'll prove it to you, validating the claims that he's making about himself. And we see that the disciples believe in him. His disciples believe. But we know in the Gospel of John, that word believe is a very, very pregnant word. It can mean a lot of different things, mainly three things. We see three groups 
of people. And I want you to write down these three groups of people because the question is, which group do you fall in? Group number one, you have true believers. True believers who see the signs that Jesus is doing, who bow the knee to his glory, to his lordship in their life, and who follow him. True, genuine believers who love Jesus more than anything and follow him until their dying day. The second group is just the group of non-believers. You have true believers and you have non-believers. People that see his signs and do not believe and will not believe and will never believe. They both see the same signs, but they look at them differently. Think of uh, when, you, when you point something out to a little child. When you say, I'll, I'll say to Tyler, Tyler, look, Tyler, look, there's a butterfly. There's a butterfly. Where does Tyler typically look when I'm saying, look, a butterfly? He just stares at my hand like something's happening with my hand. Look, look, look. No, no, no. Follow my hand to what I'm pointing at. And you typically have to take their head and there, up there. And they kind of look, okay, what? But you, you pointing. The, the hand is meant to point. So don't terminate at the hand. Let the hand point you to what you're actually looking towards, you're pointing towards. Many people would just terminate at the miracles that Jesus did. John calls them signs. They're signs. They're pointing to a reality that's greater than just an awesome miracle. But many people would just look at it and go, well, that was cool, but I don't believe anything. We have true believers. We have non-believers. Group number three, we have make-believers. We have make-believers. We have people who believe, but it's not genuine belief whether they don't want to pay the price, whether they love their sin too much, whether they don't want to surrender their will to somebody else. They see the signs and they say, yep, I think only God could do that. And I'm guessing you are God. I believe that you are God. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that you have been sent to save the world, but I just can't submit to you. It's not true, genuine saving faith. It's not real belief. We've been staring at the glory of Jesus on display this entire summer. And all of you, to some extent, believe. I, I personally don't think that anybody in this church is in group number two. Just an out-and-out non-believer. I don't know if you'd be in the chair that you're in if you were in group number two. So you're some form of believer. The question is, are you a true believer or are you a make-believer? I think the greatest test of that is, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. I don't think commandment keeping is the best test. It is a test. But the reason why it is a test of whether you are truly saved is because it goes back to you have to love Jesus to keep these commandments. And if you love him and they're increasing and they're growing in your life, then you can rest assured in God's work in your heart, changing you, saving you. Which group do you fall into? And how do we wrap all of these sermons up. The beautiful summer of just seeing the power of God on display. How do we wrap it all up? I think we can wrap it up with three points from every single sermon, every single miracle that we've looked at, three different points of conclusion that we need to walk away from this summer with in our minds and in our hearts. Number one, savor the Savior. Savor the Savior. What should we do with this miracle? What should we do with every miracle? We should savor Jesus. Look at everything that he's done this whole summer. He's God. He's worthy of our worship just because he's God. But he's done so much more than just being God. Add to that the gospel. Add to that that in our failings, he has been our perfection. Add to that that when 
the devil comes to us with the accusation of the wine has run out. You are not holy. You have disobeyed God. And there's no chance that you have to get a right standing with him on your own. Jesus says, I'll do the work. I'll do the work for you. I'll do it in your place. I will do the work and I'll let you receive the rewards. He gives us his righteousness so that we can be loved as if we had lived his sinless life, even though we are sinners deserving of judgment. Look at everything that he's done. Look at the glory of the gospel. Look at the glory of our Savior. One writer says it this way, Should we seek to fill our spiritual piggy banks with the currency of our religious efforts? Should we even fill them to having it overflowing, brimming over? It would never be merit enough. That's why Jesus says that we should come to him if we thirst and we will have living water. We should come to him if we're hungry and he will satisfy. That's all language from Isaiah 55. Go to him without money. You have no money to buy wine. You have no money to buy bread. You have no money to buy milk. And yet you can still buy it. Why? Because he's going to give you the money to be able to do that. He's going to pay the cost for you. This miracle is a vivid illustration of how Jesus is transforming the old to the new and transforming us as well. Craig Blomberg says it this way, this miracle of the transformation of the old water of the Mosaic religion into the new wine of the kingdom of Jesus is a vivid illustration and we must take it to heart. Herman Ritterboss says, for now there is wine as plentiful as water, indeed as plentiful as all the water of purification which has flowed continually but cannot take away the sin of the world. Savor the Savior. Savor Him. Can I say it this way? After we've seen all these different miracles, Jesus doesn't want you to be impressed by Him. He doesn't just want you to go, wow, this guy does amazing things. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Staring at these miracles shouldn't end with you saying, wow, He's amazing. It should end with you believing everything that He said about Himself and everything that He said about you. You saying he's amazing should propel you. It's the sign pointing you to the reality that you should submit every aspect of your life to him. And that's number two. Don't just savor him, submit to him. Number two, submit to the Savior. Savor him and submit to him. Do exactly what Mary did and exactly what Mary said. Run to him when you're in trouble and do whatever he tells you to do. Wait upon him to tell you what to do. Jesus submitted fully to his Father, therefore whatever he tells us to do, we know that it's what the Father desires for us to do. So run to him. Trust him. Jesus is eager to give to those who submit to his authority far more than they could ever imagine. I don't know what Mary was expecting Jesus to do, but I'm sure when she found out what he did, she must have said, man, that's exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I could have thought or asked or wondered that he was going to do. Look at our amazing Savior. Savor him, submit to him, and finally, number three, share the Savior. Share the Savior. Why is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed at a wedding? Why is it at a wedding? I don't think that's coincidence. I don't think that just happens to be what happened. Weddings are echoes for the kingdom of God. They're dress rehearsals for the kingdom of God. What's going to happen when we finally reach our eternal home? We have a wedding feast. We have a wedding celebration. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place. So every wedding that you and I go to in this life, 
It's just a dress rehearsal for that day. The Bible opens with a wedding. The Bible closes with a wedding. It's just two bookends of weddings. And here, Jesus begins all of his miracles on this earth at a wedding. Everybody's looking for a feast. Everybody's looking for satisfaction. Everybody's looking for a party that they can go to, that they can enjoy. And Jesus says the greatest party, the greatest feast, the greatest enjoyment, the greatest satisfaction is going to be held at the wedding on the last day, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone here in L.A., everyone here in Northridge is looking for Jesus. They don't even know it. They're looking to be satisfied in this world. They don't even know it. And you and I have the privilege of sharing Jesus, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest hope, the joy of our hearts. All of their parties are going to come to an end, but there's one party that's never going to end. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Oh, happy are those who, like the disciples, believe on Jesus, by whom this miracle was wrought. A greater marriage feast than that of Cana will one day be held, when Christ himself will be the bridegroom, and believers will be the bride. A greater glory will one day be manifested, when Jesus shall take to himself his great power and reign. And blessed will they be in that day who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you on the guest list for the marriage supper of the Lamb? If you don't know without a shadow of a doubt that you're longing and waiting and looking for that day with hope, with joy, knowing that you're going to be home with your Savior, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, submit to your Savior, savor His goodness as He has died in your place, risen to newness of life, conquered sin, conquered death, conquered your shame, conquered your guilt, has done away with it so you can be forgiven and you can be in a reconciled relationship with Jesus. Submit to Christ today and follow him until your dying day. And for those of you who know Jesus Christ, today is the day for you to remember your job on earth is to share Christ. Savor him and submit to him, but share him with everybody that you know. People need to hear Jesus, so you speak of him. Invite them to be here so that they can hear of him. They need to believe in Jesus. And until our dying day, we're going to share him as much as we can, as passionately as we can with our lips, through his word, as we testify to his miraculous power, his glory, his splendor, manifest through his word to us every time we read it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this amazing summer that has just been an encouragement to all of us. What a joy to stare at Jesus and to see his glory. And God, I pray that we would savor him even this day as we have seen him anew and afresh, as we've seen the way that Mary interacts with him. May we be like her. May we be like the disciples who believe and may it be true belief, not make-believing. God, I pray we would savor Jesus. Every day would be a quest to love him more, to know his word, to know him in the word, and to love him for who he is and for what he's done. And may that propel us to submit to him, because if we love him, we're going to keep his commandments. So may we do what he commands us to do. May we do it without questioning. May we do it without reservation. May we do it because we love him and we trust him, just like Mary did. Whatever he says to do, do it. No qualifications. May we be obedient people. And may one of the greatest aspects of our obedience be the fact that we share the Savior. 
Every single human being is looking for happiness. They're searching for satisfaction. And they try to find it in finite things, and they will always be let down every single time. We have something that is so beyond comprehension to satisfy our souls. We have the God who made us, who loves us, and who desires to be in a reconciled relationship with us, so he does all of the work to make that possible. We have Jesus, an infinite treasure to satisfy our infinite souls. So may we share him. May we share him. May we share him in the way that we speak, yes. May we share him in the way that we live with joy, with hope, with obedience, with love. And may Jesus be exalted and glorified in our church both now and forevermore until that day that we see him face to face at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, we love you. We pray it all in your precious and holy name. Amen. Let's stand together and just respond by singing that we're amazed of our Savior's love. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love. Yes, he does. A sinner condemned unclean. How